Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 21 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Since our career podcasts have been some of our most popular episodes, I thought we'd move from discussing the DBA to another hot topic, which is the solutions architect. And to do that, I've invited two colleagues, John Liam and Adam Muse, to the podcast today. Hey, Adam, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Chris. How's it going? Good, thanks. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Adam's a first-timer, so we'll be picking on him for the lightning round and his career and whatnot on this one. We're uh, inviting back uh, to the podcast, John Lamb. Hey, John, how's it going? Hey, Chris. All is good here. Good. Adam, why don't you start by giving us a brief overview of your career? In a nutshell, uh, I have been doing data since pretty much I got out of university, uh, the first degree, and uh, that includes... HP, IBM, literally working on data systems underneath the hood like DB2, along with JDBC drivers. So most of my work then was focused on development. I grew along, realized that big data was important when I started using it in several client situations, and then demanded of myself that I get into Hadoop. And I made my way through Hortonworks, uh, actually Cloudera first, Hortonworks, and uh, several other partners as well. And more recently, in this last phase of my career, um, hopefully not last, but certainly the uh, the most recent, I have been doing startups. And I was fortunate enough to be the CTO at a sort of a, a very large Indian startup by the name of Paytm. And they were looking to create a data platform and a data team. And that included data engineers and data scientists. And we formed uh, eventually like a 50-person team in Toronto, where I live, of essentially the elite data gurus. We created recommendation systems, anti-fraud systems for this payment network, uh, several other data products, probably not worth mentioning right now. And so that was very instructive and pushed me into sort of the higher realms of, of management and still kept me close to the tech. And so I was once again a CTO in a, like a location-based analysis firm. And now I'm at Pythian. And Pythian's pretty cool. And this is sort of Great, because I get to go back and see a lot of people that I worked with in my Clutter Hortonworks days. And Pythian's filled with amazing, intelligent tech people that, you know, get it. So here I am, and now I'm on this podcast. Great, great. Thanks, Adam. And John, I know we've heard from you before, but uh, why don't you give us a brief overview for anyone uh, just joining us now? Yeah, sure. I'm a consulting solutions architect by trade. I uh, started off in the networking space uh, just over 10 years ago, and uh, I worked my way through different IT disciplines. Worked on a number of roles, worked on design work, implementation, administration, across you know varying technologies. And I've been with Pythian now for just under a year, hitting my anniversary just next week. And I've been leading the Google Cloud architecture practice. Right, right. Good stuff, John. And uh, congrats. Thank you. All right, let's dive right in. So, guys... The term solutions architect is fairly vague. So let's start by defining it, at least in, in our terms. So, gentlemen, what is a solutions architect? I think we have some very opinionated views on this. I originally took on the, the title solutions architect. After doing some research, I was originally more of an infrastructure architect, having worked in the networking space systems as well as storage. So I come from more of an infrastructure background. And then the term solutions architect started becoming more common. So I did my research and I follow a bit of the TOGAF framework, I guess you could say, where I see the architect as a spectrum. 
uh, you have the enterprise architect, which is more on the business side of things, capturing business requirements, uh, defining business operations processes and all that. Uh, and then you have the technical architects on the other side of that, which are closer to specialized consultants in specific fields or specific technologies. And then the solutions architect is someone that kind of sits in between that. So they're able to take those business requirements. They're able to translate them into technologies. They're able to assign certain technologies and architectures to support these business requirements in terms of projects, solutions, platforms, what have you. So in a nutshell. Okay. I would generally agree with everything that was said, having spent a lot of time in the larger companies, but I think I've evolved to a more philosophical perspective on what the architect role is, um, especially in the time in uh, startups. So what was mentioned, you know, was, was certainly this division of infrastructure architects, technical architects, you know, like development architects, and you know, we could throw data architects in the mix. And all of these would have sort of role specific specialties, all of them would share a specialty that that was a strength. And I think that there's something else, the je ne sais quoi, the meat of what makes you an architect and why, from my experience, at least hiring architects now, both from a large perspective and a startup perspective, I looked for. And if you'll permit me an analogy, I'll, I'll try to put this in an analogy. And it also lets me um, recommend a really good book. So... There's this book, really, really excellent, uh, has nothing to do with solution architecture, has nothing to do with technology per se. It's by author out of the Santa Fe Institute, which is a great place, by the way. So it's Jeffrey West's scale. It's very recently released, I think 2017 even. And it's about complex systems and you know how, how they scale up quite literally. And that goes with cities, organizations and whatnot. And what does this have to do with an architect? This goes back to why I wanted to introduce an analogy. To me, an architect is a really good plumber. And and if we want to think about that uh, a little bit deeper, think about your bathroom, think about your kitchen, think about the things in your house that represent your interface to the plumbing system into that particular vein of architecture and infrastructure, I should say. So everything's very, very similar. Now, if you think about kitchen in your house and a kitchen in a your office building or any super large, you know, like mega block or or a really large skyscraper or you know if you're in toronto the cn tower all kitchens look the same and all bathrooms look the same for very good reasons and so if i was borrowing from that analogy on jeffrey west book scale he's saying that the interfaces and the, the sort of the endpoints in a network are really really common what changes is the complexity uh, as it grows and so to, to keep this analogy tight without going into the whole book his premise is that Basically, everything in like plumbing and large networks and infrastructure networks are space filling networks and they grow in complexity in either a sublinear or a super linear fashion. And I feel that in computer science in general, and that's the architect we're referring to, our infrastructure grows in complexity as we get bigger and bigger. So the amount of complexity required to build a skyscraper does not scale in a linear fashion with the amount of complexity that you can build a house with. And what that really means for an architect is that you're going to use a template that's already made by somebody else in, in a house or in a condo, but I mean, specifically like one condo unit. But if you have to like expand this to, to basically pump water up the CN tower, or you have to build a skyscraper, or you have to do anything else like on an oil rig somewhere, you're going to need a specialist that understands what is behind the wall and then the nature of the scaling around that. And so it's a really long winded explanation that one gets me to, um, you know, uh, mention that book. And two, it's this notion of 
the philosophy around you have to be a specialist. You have to understand the endpoints, but you also have to understand that the complexity grows as you start to include many other things. And the to round this all out is that if you think about the skill set of building a plumbing in a, in a large skyscraper, you're going to have to consider certain things like budget. You're going to have to consider certain things like how much pipe do you need? It, it's straightforward and it's literally in a list, um, a do-it-yourself list for your kitchen, but it's not for a large building. So that being said, I, I believe that an architect has expanded their sphere of decision-making past a developer. They've grown out to use the templates properly to encompass the entire system of value for whatever they're delivering to their customer, be it a kitchen or a application. And then for me, I mean, I, I've seen a startup CTO position basically be another echelon out of that where you're still evolving on that same skill set. You're just taking more considerations like people costs, structure costs, and uh, long-term decision-making for the success of your company, not just your project. Right, right. I like both your answers, actually. Are there different types of solutions architects? In terms of solutions architects, like the term itself is still relatively vague in the industry. I've seen it used, misused, abused, you name it. I mean, if you think about it just semantically, syntactically, however you want to look at it, as words, solutions architect, it's someone that's architecting a solution. So... Depending on the project you're working on, depending on the scale, depending on the platform you're working on, and the granularity and the level of complexity, sometimes one would call a technical architect can be a solutions architect. So if we're developing a solution for a data platform or just a small, I don't know, you know, back-end database, you can get a MySQL specialist, if it's a MySQL database, a MySQL specialist, mm -hmm. and they would technically be a solutions architect simply because right. it's such a specific a project, but as complexity grows, and you know, as Adam was saying, you start having to factor in a lot more other fact, uh, a lot more other dimensions. It's no longer just this one MySQL database. There's the interactivity. There's the interface with all the other systems. There's how it's all put together. Uh, how does it actually serve the purpose of providing a solution? How does it affect the business uh, in terms of financing, accounting, costing? Accounting is one that's actually surprisingly overlooked. And in general, yes, there are different solutions architects. It depends on the context, mm -hmm. but in a more generic state, as we were saying, I like to draw that line between a solutions architect and a technical architect just for the broad range of projects out there. So, and when I say broad range, I'm saying a project that is a full stack where you have, uh, you have application developers, you have uh, UI and UX, you have data and uh, intelligence and data science and machine learning, where if you look at a full stack today of, I don't want to say generic, but what a modern application might look like or application stack might look like. I would say it consists of a solutions architect across the board and a number of technical architects for the different specializations. Okay, that's good. What about you, Adam? Do you agree with that? I don't actually agree that there's different types of architects because I go back to my philosophical point. I think that after hiring, again, what taught me this was a limited budget in a startup, maybe not always that limited, but hiring the right person, if they don't have the specialist skills, was always superior in results than hiring the specialist that didn't have the right mentality. Because at some point, the architect has to take on roles that will be like it will be technology they've never seen before especially if you're doing something innovative so while i don't necessarily dispute that there are different different types of architects i would never i would never in a hiring or in a in a categorization say that you ended up there because there was a specific path i'd say that 
someone chose you because you're a generalist and you know how to learn very, very well, because I guarantee you there's no way you could know every single component of technology that you're going to architect in the near future or in the distant future. And you have to constantly be learning. So that can be said for any job, but specifically for the architect, they have to deep dive into something and become like a micro specialist and then jump back out. So I always look for, I don't care if you're an infrastructure architect or if you're an Oracle architect that knew certain components. If you had to leave the IBM sphere, Oracle sphere, uh, if you had to leave the sort of like DevOps infrastructure sphere, the characteristics that you bring with you are trainable. And it's just a question of how much appetite do you have to make the decisions around being an architect. And, and to me, it's the decisions because having had to manage architects, you want to hand this off. So again, like it's, it sounds wishy-washy, but it's the people that get promoted to architect, not the, not the tech. Right. I have a team of solutions architects reporting to me as well. And so that brings to mind one kind of question, which is, how do you avoid, if you're hiring a solutions architect and they have a, a specific technology stack, in mind, how do you avoid, like people like to use what's familiar to them, what they've had success with. When you are hiring solutions architects, how do you ensure that they're going to come and properly research the solutions that you need rather than just moving to their toolbox of success, you know, things they've succeeded with, Adam? I have two strategies for this. It depends on your outcome. So if the outcome is to hire somebody and evaluate them at that particular time, obviously not speaking of anything you do to filter them, but what when you get them in the door and you're like, this is a candidate, I literally give them something that they couldn't possibly have done before and with tool sets they didn't understand. And I, I even do this with developers. I specifically make them new, learn a new framework and then present it to me. And that's my test because if they can't be flexible enough to learn something new and get an outcome that's reasonable, then they don't have the gumption to actually become an architect, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. Well, what about you, John? Have, has that happened to you in your experience? Yeah, I was actually kind of going to agree with that in terms of if they're stuck to a toolbox then there's a good chance that they shouldn't even be considered an architect per se one of the most important attributes that i've come to learn about myself is that you have to be a self-learner and you have to constantly push yourself out of your comfort zone like for example like uh, i'll take myself like a year ago i wasn't very big on the whole data space yet i started working with a company that's all about data. And in this past year, I could honestly say that I think I've come pretty far, that I've even started venturing into you know, writing blog posts and articles about designing data systems in specific. So had I not had an architect mindset, I would have just been like, no, I don't want to do this. Or, oh, I've, uh, you can always simplify this by doing something else and just trying, fi- trying to find ways around it rather than really digging in and pushing yourself to learn more and progress and figure out exactly what is it that, you know, everyone's so excited about this. Is it hype? Is it not hype? Uh, Is this actually a valid solution per se? Does it meet the business requirements, the performance requirements, the technical requirements? So yeah, if you're going to get someone that's going to work out of a toolbox, back to my main point, I doubt they're an architect to begin with. Okay. So let's flip it again. So if I'm a a DBA, let's say, or an, an IT worker in another space, and I've decided I'm tired of being on call, I'm kind of interested in learning more technologies and I want to, I'm thinking solutions architecture might be a good space for me for at least for a while. How do I stand out on my resume as a potential solutions architect? Well, I mean, being a DBA and I can relate to this because that's kind of where I was about 10 years ago. I was a network engineer and I only knew networking. 
had I stayed in networking, there's a good chance I wouldn't be where I am today. I would probably be a specialist in some specific network technology or vendor technology of some sort. I think the most important thing is first, understand what a solutions architect is, understand the breadth of the scope, understand that it's not necessarily one technology driven, one, a single technology driven approach and make a choice if you do actually want to go that way. Right. Let's say I've made that choice. How do I stand out? I'm, I've made the choice. Now I want to I want to get a job somewhere. What am I doing? And maybe resume isn't the only way. Maybe it's check-ins on GitHub or something. But like, how do I stand out as a, the potential? Because I've only been a DBA on Oracle and maybe SQL Server for 10 years. But now I want to move. What do I do? I think one of the most valuable things you can do is just expose yourself to different technologies, different areas of IT disciplines that you haven't explored previously, especially, I mean, as a DBA, you might know one, two, or three databases, maybe more. You could be amazing and know like five or 10, I don't know. But generally start to look beyond just that. Start to look at, you know, data as as big data. Look uh, look into maybe data science, maybe that will be interesting for you. Look into the ap- actual application stack. Start to get a general, more general idea of the whole IT uh, canvas. Mm-hmm. And from there, just exposing yourself to these technologies starting to get more of a holistic view of how things fit together. And of course, there's also the business side of things. You have to start exposing yourself to being more of a people person, a communicator, an educator, a politician, a project manager. Like there's a lot of soft skills and non-functional requirements that come along with being a solutions architect as well. So Mm -hmm. starting off from DBA, not to say that you can't do it. It's doable. Lots of people have done it. But you have to be ready to really push yourself and push yourself hard to learn and expand and grow and expose yourself to a lot of other. Okay. So, Adam, what's your take? So, you've done everything that, let's say, the candidate has done everything that John has just suggested, assuming you don't you know, really disagree with that. How does one then demonstrate to you, who used to hire, I believe now hires these people, how are they demonstrating that that, that they have that? I'm going to back up a little bit because I don't think that John said anything that I would disagree with. All these things are good, but there's one particular thing that John had, and I happen to know he's a good solution architect with the benefit of working with him. So the insight is very, very relevant and he does it very well. And it's something that's super important. And that's expose yourself to the customer or to the business stakeholder. Now it seems antithetical because you're, you're trying to build up a technical solution set, But I would say that if I had a choice or I could give somebody advice at any point before they ever got to their resume or applying for another position, uh, within your own company, make friends with your product manager, make friends with a business stakeholder if you can. If if it's a client-facing kind of role, then get yourself in the meeting room even if you don't say anything. Because the primary way that you go from um, your mindset of the technology as, as a DBA is to understand what the business challenges are. And guess what? If you're a DBA and speaking from experience, no one really cares if you took that, you know, that query in the Snowflake schema and made it 30% faster. We care, you know, like technically because it's awesome. But the reality is that it may or may not have impacted the customer. And there may have been 30 other problems that needed to go in line first in that overall effort. And that's where I think that people fall down a lot. You get all this excellent expertise, but nobody stopped to say, do I need to use this expertise? Like I've worked with people that were PhDs, exceptionally bright, and they re-implemented algorithms that were already in the database or already in like a, you know, an existing framework. And and it, it just, they needed guidance and they didn't have the wherewithal to decide 
all right, what what actually should have been the outcome for this? And that that means going to your business stakeholder and experimenting there in the company that you're in first. Develop the skills with, again, that whole sphere of decision making. You want to get outside of the current sphere of tactical decisions you're making into what the solution architect really does, which is I'm going to interpret whatever the business value is at whatever level of architect I'm at into the outcome that has to come out of this technical design. And the reason that's important is that your decision based it's or your decision process is based on more information than it would have been if you were just technical. So if you don't have that expanding information for, for context, you're not going to make an architect level decision. And I'm from looking at your resume, wouldn't consider it just because you happen to do three more courses in big data. Okay. So what I heard from both of you is you do it by starting, uh, you start doing it wherever you are now, where you live, wherever you're working now, do it within your current organization. So you can hopefully build the skills there and figure out how to then demonstrate it either on your resume, in your cover letter, maybe through other online things, maybe blogging. And then if you need to move, then, then doing it that way. Now, you both have very different backgrounds, uh, yet you're in the same career path. Is there a typical background to the, or uh, a better background that allows one to leapfrog into this, uh, in, into solutions architecture? I would say yes. I think there's a simple answer for this. If anything helped me, it was uh, doing, in fact, what John um, is very, very good at too, is like working with a client in pre-sales exposes you to many, many problems. You can also have internal clients too. Anything that exposes you to as many complicated problems with business stakeholders is going to help you get that context. And that yeah. that can be either a change in role or exposure in your own company. I agree. What about you, John? I think I understood the question a little differently. Uh, in terms of a background, uh, I mean, if we go on more on the technical side, I'd say there is no specific background. But like Adam said, yes, pre-sales is a wealth of knowledge, but you also have to be ready for that because you get exposed to so many problems and you talk to so many people and you see how they're like people are solving the same problem in so many different ways. And that alone exposes you to just ideas. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. And then you start thinking, well, maybe we can use this in another place. So technically, a specific background, I wouldn't say yes, I, except if you would say maybe a bit of a business background. Operationally, yes, they all do have to have somewhat of a similar exposure. It's interesting. I, I would add to my answer to it because it is different. I would say the business background is not as necessary as the fundamental developer and technical background. It, exposure to an applicate, like exposure to delivery and implementation at some point was an absolute must and enough exposure to it. I think the business can be learned. But again, I think that's an opinion. It's just the way I came. I agree with that. The only thing, something that I tend to do is I try to see things from other people's perspective. And I try to remember myself before I was exposed to the business. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually, I remember very well that there's a lot of things I didn't know and I'm very well aware that I didn't know them. So I, I think that also starts to depend on your experiences, what you've been exposed to. So the business is important, maybe not as important as, oh, you know, you need to be like, you know, you need to understand finance inside and out. You need to know what valuations are like and all that. But you have to have a generally good idea of what impacts finance, what impacts accounting, what impacts management and project management, and then human resourcing. You need to have a good idea of what they actually do. Because if you come from a pure technical background, or when I was in a pure technical background, I was in a bit of a bubble. It's like, you know, it's my team, my department, my part of the project, and this is how we worked. And it was just to do a really good job at that. 
But when you start to see things at a larger scale, some things that didn't make sense to you before, all of a sudden start to make sense. So one of the things that I found throughout my career as a DBA is many or many non-technical organizations didn't know where to put me in the technology stack. Some would say, oh, you belong with the programmers. Some would say, oh, you belong with the infrastructure people. Where does the solutions architect typically fit in your enterprise-sized organization in the org tree? Go ahead, John. That's, that's just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying to buy time. <laughs> it's a tricky one and i hate to say this but as most conversations i have it depends (laughs) okay well let me let me try and make it easier so instead of because you know everybody creates their organization a little bit different if you picture a simplified org structure what level do they need to report to to be most effective at their job to a certain extent I mean, I think I mentioned this a little earlier. I see solutions architects being innate managers to a certain extent, uh, or project leaders, team leaders. There is a sense of leadership that kind of comes in just by virtue of the work that's being done. I mean, coordinating between all the different teams. In terms of reporting to someone in specific, I'd say they are, and this goes back to the initial model I, I outlined, they're kind of the the boundary between the business and the technical and yeah, different org structures, different people. But I mean, let's say in a, in an enterprise where you have an IT department and you have, you know, all other business departments, he would sit somewhere in between there. So it could be an IT manager. Mm-hmm. It could be complementary to an IT manager. Uh, it could be even a CTO in certain situations. If you want a specific solutions architect role, that would depend on the, com- uh, on the company and the company's structure as it is. In terms of the actual responsibilities and duties of a solutions architect, that doesn't necessarily need to be a solutions architect. He could just be wearing a different hat, but essentially is a solutions architect. I think Adam has more insight into this. But. Yeah, so I was, thank you for letting me think about my answer. <laughs> with your excellent answer, John. And, um, and the reason is, is I, I am very, con- I'm likely to give you a contentious answer on what I think about, because the question was, where is this solution architect going to fit in a large company? And, you know, I've worked in large companies and smaller companies, and I can, I can tell you that I prefer the smaller companies. And so um, the contentious part is that I would want to rip apart most of the hierarchies that go around building software inside an organization as it typically stands right now. I do believe that there's still room for IT or at least support structure, but I don't believe it should look the same way. I think most things should be oriented around the business project. I think product managers should be elevated to larger positions. And I think product managers or solution architects can actually end up with the aspect that John's gone over, which is the leadership. And that's historically how I've used them. There are technical product managers that are excellent at leading teams. And why do I mention that? Because it's your best pairing with a solution architect or a generalized project architect. Those architects can lead teams. It depends on the individual. And this goes back to, you know, when you're thinking about small companies, you have the benefit of like hiring people, not just, you know, the, the line items in a set of, uh, of your job description. You're really after that, that thinker. So what I've done, I have the solution architects answer the CTO. Like that would be the high level ones. 
the low level ones are running product teams. And that, when I say low level, that's not to indicate their level of skill. It's what they want to do. And they want to be more of a developer than making, say, a larger decision on we're all going to use this particular elk stack for this logging. They don't want to deal with that. They want to deal with the really, really excellent problem of, you know, I want to get this machine learning model as a service into production as you know, elegantly as possible. Those kind of people you put them where they're successful. And if they want to change later, well, great, that's no problem. But this goes back to my product centric view of things, which is you're going to build something, you're going to be committed to it. And the architects end up leading the developers in many cases. And in some cases you have people that are just terrible leaders and they're just excellent at architecture. You know, they're like me, they want to sit in the corner, like most CTOs are introverts, by the way. And they're just really, really good at figuring out the problem and thinking about five steps ahead, but very, very bad at organizing people to to do that. If you have that situation and you can't solve it with a technical product manager or they're just really, really good, those are excellent candidates to be like people that you matrix manage and float around the company to solve the problems with a special emphasis on the fact that they have to be at that problem until they solve some component of it or see it resolved. Otherwise become armchair solution architects that almost every organization has that do absolutely nothing for the rest of the company, but annoy the people that are trying to build products with stupid rules and patterned architectures. It's a long and winded answer, but like I said, it's a contentious answer. Right, right. Okay. Let's shift gears again. What value, Adam, do certifications play? (laughs) None. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't think the solutions architects should have any certification? No, I think I, I'm I'm actually going to go after mine as well. So it's not like I don't value them. I value them because it's a marker to say that I feel comfortable that I learned what I needed to learn out of that, but I feel like it should be self-driven. I look at it on someone's resume as an indication of, like I'll ask them about it, an indication of how they got it. Did they do it on their own? Are they mandated to do it? What did they do? Did they enjoy it? It's more of... If you got it, it indicates some interest, but there are many other things in a project that could indicate interest. I could sit down with somebody and watch them whiteboard their solution out and know that like, a certification would be a complete waste of their time. Right, right. Okay, good. What about you, John? Very much along the same lines. It definitely is a marker. It's, for me, getting a certification was something for myself. I want to be like, okay, did I actually learn everything properly? And this is a test to see. And yeah, I'm going to flaunt it when I have it. But it's... I wouldn't want to be judged based on it. At the same time, Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't judge people based on it. And for a very simple reason, I mean, there are so many skills. I actually have quite a number of certifications and there are so many things that miss, that are missing in those exams that just, I mean, it's to say that, okay, I mean, I don't see that anyone who take, like if I see someone else had the similar certification, I'm like, okay, so you pretty much learned what you had to. And you got the certification, whoopee, but you, you don't necessarily know right. how to put it into production, for example. Right. So it doesn't indicate experience or, or mastering of the skill. Is that? Maybe, maybe some of the more advanced ones, uh, like there's the VMware certified implementation expert. Like they need to go to a very deep degree in understanding the VMware stack to be able to mm-hmm. achieve that. And that's where mm-hmm. certifications become a little more interesting because... At that point, you're talking about exams that aren't just written. It's exams that are either simulated or there's a board that needs to judge you and there's more of discussion about it. That's when you start bordering on more of an architect type, you know, certification. Cisco have something similar. I'm not sure if there are that many, but something like an AWS solutions architect or a Google Cloud uh, architect, those are still exams. Granted, they might be 
architecturally driven. I personally enjoyed the Google Cloud Certified Architect exam because it did focus a lot on architectural patterns. But that's not to say that that says that I'm a good architect per se outside right, of the right. Google space or right, a solutions right. architect. Okay. And having okay. said that, I don't think there really is a solutions architect certification per se, like something that's industry standard. I mean, people can hardly define their role as it is. <laughs> right. I literally right. filter resumes by the amount of certificates that are actually put down on it in at least in some job roles. In fact, I would say that the soundbite that to take away from it is I really hope you spent more time actually learning something than spending time getting a certification. Yeah. Okay. Well, but thinking about that person that wants to leapfrog into the role, maybe they've looked in in their current role and company and said, you know, there's they've tried, but there's no opportunity for them to get or, or little opportunity for them to get some of the skills that uh, you guys mentioned. So they want to try externally, uh, basically trying to find another company. Is it a good strategy? So let's say they're on one, any particular name, the technology SQL Server, let's say, as a DBA, they want to be a solutions architect. Does it make sense for them to try and get opposite certifications to demonstrate their ability to learn, Adam? I would say it doesn't hurt. It goes back to the answer that we gave around like looking at resumes. But I, I would just catch that point with it's always better if you have an, if you want to work for this company, they should be evaluating what you accomplished for the outcome of your project, your product. So it's always better to have a statement that says, I built this automated decision engine for this particular item. And I was, if not the main decision maker, I was a decision maker or an influencer on this. And that has more weight for somebody who's truly looking for a person, not a checklist than a cert will ever do. And then the secondary concern is, yes, a cert might help prove that you can learn, but I would expect you could learn without certifications. And I would still look for evidence mm-hmm. of self-learning without certifications. Because if you can't self-guide, right. you'll never be an architect because you don't know what right. you need to do next. And there's no guarantee it'll be a, a certified exam. Right. Okay. Back to what Adam was saying before. Yeah. If we look, you know, aside from just the certifications, if that person needs to leapfrog into something else, they probably have a very good chance of doing it internally within their current organization to, as a proof of concept. So it'll be like if they're a DBA, uh, let them start taking on a little more of some, I don't know, some DevOps type work and maybe DevOps around the DBA tasks, you know, just automation orchestration. And that is a proof in, in and of itself of work that they can do in other fields. And then from there, they can start applying to other jobs and be like, look, I have this experience. And then I also did this. So that shows incentive. Uh, that shows proof of concept that they actually can do the work and have done the work. And that, for me, would be a lot more valuable than saying that, oh, look, I was a DBA, but I got like 10 certifications in, I don't know, networking. So right. you never actually worked in it. Right. Very good point, John. Very good point. So I think we've covered the role and how to get there fairly thoroughly. Let me ask another question. John, what's your favorite part about being a solutions architect? The unknown. (laughs) It's being able to take some kind of abstract uh, concept or some requirement or some need. And first of all, not just looking at the obvious, trying to factor in as many uh, dimensions as I can and trying to really think of a holistic solution that encompasses all of that and that serves to, you know, to provide a platform for all of that. Because it's easy to come in and say, oh, just do it this way or, oh, just do it that way. But that's rarely ever, I mean, if you're calling me for that as a solutions architect, 
you're wasting a lot of money. <laughs> solutions architects are not, okay. are not, they don't come cheaply. So yeah, when you have a complex problem that really needs not just, I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be just technically complex. There could be a company that's in, uh, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy and they might need to pivot in some way and they need someone to come in and help them with that. You know, besides just the business side, what's the technical feasibility of that and how would that align with what they're actually trying to achieve? Having been in pre-sales for the past year and having been an independent consultant before that, a lot of times companies don't necessarily know, not, not to say what they want, they know, they know what the goal is, they know what they're trying to achieve as a business goal. Sometimes they have an idea of what they want to do and a lot of times that wasn't necessarily the best way. Uh, I don't like to use the word the best, but they hadn't really factored in all the different dimensions that they had to. That's one thing that I really feel that I enjoy bringing to the table. There's the strategy as well as the technical know-how and being to provide that synergy of the two, uh, being an out-of-the-box thinker. It's a number of things really, but it really is all about providing a solution without pigeonholing the word solution as a technical thing or a technical artifact. Okay. And how about you, Adam? What's your favorite part about, about the job? I'm going to have a very similar answer to John because I, and that's good because I think that we, we found something here that's very, very common. And, and that is that I, I would word it differently. Like the unknown is awesome, but I like to fail at this point in my career. Like if I didn't fail at something, then I am not taking risks and I haven't expanded and I haven't, it's not just about personal risk. It's more about, you know, your operational and your, your knowledge risk. So take, take that challenge, take that unknown and try it and understand that you're going to bounce a few times and hopefully you catch it before it ends up, you know, uh, being out there as a product. But that part is awesome. Like if somebody asks you to go build a, uh, asteroid detection system and taking a bunch of data and you have to start doing fast Fourier transforms and you have to orchestrate everything uh, from multiple ge geographic locations. And no one's talked about spanner. No one's got any pre-made solutions for this. No one knows how to deal with any of the consolidation of the data and no one knows how to backtrack the data. Like a real solution architect should be like, I have no idea what this is going to be like. That's cool. And then keep going. And then, that's what's okay. going to keep them working 80 hours a week. Otherwise, it's just kind of boring. Okay, good run. You brought something up that I, I think that we don't discuss enough in IT, so I'm, I'm going to uh, throw it at you. What's the value of failure? Failure in many forms is valuable, obviously, because uh, it's the best teacher. It's humiliating, which you have to be. The best part about failure in the initial phase of failure is that you're humiliated, not necessarily, you know, visibly, but sometimes just personally. And you immediately have to check all your assumptions. And that's when you start being open to what you got wrong and you start learning, you start actually learning. And that is, again, going back to one of the key characteristics of a solution architect, you know, probably any good IT worker is that you're going to need to learn that new technology, but to screw up at the solution architect level is such a tremendous screw up because so much other component, like so many other successes are riding on your success that it's great because you really have to work your way out of that hole. So it is absolutely necessary. The first thing you should do after you fail is go to your colleagues and start learning. And if you're not doing that, then you miss the point of like working in a company of more than one anyway, and you might as well be an independent consultant sitting on a beach. And that's cool if that works for you, but that's not where solution architects work. So, okay. Good. John, do you want to add anything to that? 
No, I agree with the failing and the humiliation of failing. And you should actually have a bit of a hunger towards that because, and failing should drive you to get more excited rather than put yourself down. Because, I mean, we've been taught that, oh, you shouldn't fail in life. You shouldn't fail in school. You shouldn't fail. And I get it. You know, technically you shouldn't. But at the same time, for me, the second I fail, I actually get a little excited. Like, okay, I failed. I want to figure out why this didn't work. Because, I mean, in my mind, it should have, which means I'm missing something. And this is an opportunity for me to learn in a different manner of, okay, maybe there's something that I was misunderstanding. Or maybe there's something that I'm going to get out of this that I didn't know. Uh, having worked on you know Linux stacks as well as Microsoft stacks, one thing that I came across quite frequently is they don't necessarily play well together. And I would try to set things up. And I, ideally speaking, in an engineering perspective, I'm like, this should work. But then you... You realize the servers don't see each other or they don't connect or some really weird thing happens and you just come to realize, okay, in all practicality, this is not going to work simply because of a limitation that I just wasn't aware of. But on paper, it looks great. Right, right. Okay. Okay, good. I think we've had a really good chat about this uh, career track, so I think we can wind down. But just before we do, do either of you, we'll, we'll start with Adam. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I would say that there's a there's a crystal point that comes out of the discussion and we didn't do much. What is the skill set you need exactly? And, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there like, oh, tell me how to be a big data architect. Cause I get that question a lot. Here's this skill set list. And it goes back to the original point. Like, look, if you can't do that complex plumbing in the big skyscraper and that analogy, then you're not going to ever do that plumbing with an extra set of skill sets to teach you how to build the better bathroom. It needs to be the stuff that, that goes on that's unknown that's there. So it, can you transfer, transfer your skills from building a house to a skyscraper to the CN tower? Then yeah, you're an architect, you know, Godspeed my son. But if not, then you're, you're probably just learning skills and thinking that's going to make you an architect and it's not. Good. Really good point. Uh, John, did you want to add anything at all before we close off? I think we covered the majority of everything. Uh, I can't emphasize what Adam said more, but yeah, it's not a checklist. Don't think of it as a checklist. It's, it's a way of right. thinking. It's a way of being, and it's a certain discipline that you have to force yourself to become. If this is exactly, if this is really what you want, it's not easy, right. but I mean, I've learned to enjoy it and that's why I do it day in and day out. The other point I would add is if you want to make a career change, whether it's a solutions architect or any other job, the best thing you can do is start looking at job ads and see what the employers are looking for and and then growing and learning those things. It's all out there for you. I would just have one small disagreement with that. This is actually a qualm I have with the industry and especially the hiring industry. A lot of times I've been approached by recruiters that tell me, oh, this is a position for a solutions architect. Then you read the description. First of all, it's not a solutions architect. Second of all, there are some pretty big misconceptions out there of what is needed. And sometimes I actually got certain clients in the past by way of educating them through what they actually need, which, I mean, interesting enough, that was me being a solutions architect, <laughs> but on the human resourcing side. But generally, take those job descriptions with a grain of salt, but at the same time, they're a very good indicator of what, what the industry needs. So yes, you know, they'll say you need Puppet Chef, Ansible for orchestration. Yeah, uh, Hadoop, Spark, BigQuery, 
yeah, those are things that people are asking for. It gives you a good idea of what the market is is asking for, and someone has made that decision, whether it was a good decision or not. That's you're you're not at that point to judge that yet, but that's a good, it's a good snapshot of what you should be looking at today. And you know, you might not know. Like I, I totally agree. Like the recruiters generally are not very good at their jobs, at least when it comes to solution architecture. And then being somebody who has to write job descriptions, we might not be very good at our jobs describing it. But as a somebody he- heading into their role, get some of the checklist items that are going to go through the filters. Obviously, you have to get in the door eventually. But after you get through the filter, you want to be talking about outcomes from your projects. Hence why we're saying you need to make friends with your chief product officers. You want outcomes. You want to be speaking in outcomes. And if you're not speaking in outcomes about the job description when you're physically in the room talking to the person, then you're not talking about a solution architect. You're talking about an engineering role. Good point. I'm not suggesting that recruiters are the best way to decide what skills you need. But if you don't, if you don't align with those, uh, the job advertisements at the hiring companies, not the recruiting companies, then you'll never get through the filtering system. And we get hundreds of resumes now. So we just can't keep up and we can't interview each, each person. So that's where I'm suggesting. And I think we agree on at least that part, uh, to help you get you get you in the door to have the conversation. And Adam, I think, well, I think you both have provided very good advice, but I really like the outcomes discuss, uh, you know, d- part of the interview process because it does demonstrate, I hope the right thinking. So with that, uh, I think we'll head into the lightning round. We've already picked on uh, John and you, if you want to hear his, you should check out our chat about uh, the Google uh, next conference. It was, a, it was another great chat. So we'll uh, pick on Adam this time around. Adam, I know you have a long list, but what project are you most proud of? I have a few and I would like to say a few that I don't think I'm allowed to talk about you know, due to NDA or secrecy. So I'm not going to talk about an asteroid detection system. But there is a really cool... Uh, actually, doing anti-fraud was probably my... I'm proud of it because it taught me the unbelievable importance of data to machine learning algorithms. And it taught me the respect for uptime for a a system that has to run at, you know, like faster than Visa in some cases. It taught me an awful lot about how to construct a a working production machine learning pipeline, including everything from, it's it's very much 80% data engineering and and, uh, platform engineering and very little actual machine learning. It's almost a relief when you get to the machine learning to do this. But once you have everything in place, it turns out that there's a whole bunch of work that needs to be done before you can put something into production from models and whatnot to detect things like fraud. And, you know, the first the first failure I had was restricting access to my CEO to do any transactions on the payment network. So that was that was a very humiliating and excellent experience. And we got really good. At, uh, at making that work after. So that's that's my most proud project right now. Okay, good. I know you're an avid reader, but uh, could you recommend a book that's maybe had a, a significant impact on your career? Not on my way of thinking, because there's a whole list for that. And I would suggest anyone to just sit there and read the working papers in the Santa Fe Institute, other than obviously the technical stuff. But I would say that like a business book or like something that's actually made me think about how to manage and how to approach things it would be uh, the hard thing about hard things. Good recommendation. I've I've read that book. It, it is a good book. Standing or sitting desk? Both. I often uh, switch between the two of them so I can get going. But it depends on the activity. Coding, sitting. Okay. Okay. Laptop or desktop? 
mm, Chromebook. All right. <laughs> Which is a laptop and a very light one. Okay. So you've just hit, uh, hit the next question as well. iPhone or Android? Both, because you got to test your apps out on both. Say, uh, no, but seriously, an Android most of the time. Okay. And what is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? I would say Cloud9 right now. All right. Okay. Great. Well, thank you for joining us, gentlemen. As I said, it was a great chat. That's all the time we have uh, today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by telling a friend where to find us or writing us an honest review on iTunes. As always, we love feedback. We love to hear from you, suggestions, ideas. Maybe you want to be a guest on the podcast. You can email me at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape. 